and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Our guest this week, Robert Eric Shoemaker, likes art that defies categorization. He's drawn to literary experiences that he would describe as all kinds of crazy. He is a poet, playwright, and translator who is the artistic director of Poetry Is, A Sound Experience, a collaboration between musicians and poets to create an event where the audience interacts with the performance in a way that perhaps makes poetry more accessible. Eric tells us why some poets think poetry can have the power of magic, why he was drawn to write a musical about famous married poets Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and why he believes poetry is currently having a resurgence. Amy and I have a guest today, Robert Eric Shoemaker. He is the artistic director of Poetry Is, and he's also a doctoral student at the University of Louisville. We're so glad to have you here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Poetry Is. I'm a doctoral student in comparative humanities at the University of Louisville, which means a lot of things, but I'm mostly doing literature, poetry, gender studies stuff with a little bit of public history thrown in there. So that's where the poetry is stuff comes in. I'm a poet. I'm a theater artist. I do all kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> very interdisciplinary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that's part of my process is keeping it varied as well as what I'm reading, keeping that varied too. And Poetry Is started out as a theater production company, actually. And I started that in Chicago after going to UChicago for undergrad. I was just kind of floating around like, what am I going to do with myself now that I don't have theater at school to do? At school, I ran another theater troupe. So I sort of started producing my own work uh, in the Chicago area and called what I was doing Poetry Is Productions because most of it was poetic plays. And then that evolved when I got to Louisville because I was thinking of reintroducing the idea of poetry and performance and got inspired to incorporate music in that as well based on the people that I was working with in the community. So Poetry Is a Sound Experience is that new thing started in June of last year, 2019. And uh, we're, we're producing stuff now. So it's like theatrical, but also poetry, but also music. <laughs> it's a little bit of everything. It's a, it's a little bit of everything. we got a smorgasbord over here. So you majored in theater for your undergrad? Yeah, I majored okay. in theater, did a minor in creative writing and cinema. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you said a lot of the things that you had done in Chicago work poetic. Is that how you described it? Poetic theater? Yeah. So when I was at UChicago, I was studying playwriting mostly. So that was where the theater and creative writing came in. There was no playwriting major. So I combined the two things. And along the way, I discovered Poets Theater, which is a theater written by poets, like it sounds like. And a lot of the time, they're very experimental. 
So people who wrote this stuff, like Robert Creeley, Amiri Baraka, like they wrote these teeny little plays. Baraka's Dutchman's probably one of the more famous poets theater plays. And they take place in weird places. They have really heightened language, very experimental formatting on the page. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to write these weird things and then try to get them before an audience to engage them in a different way than poetry or theater can do on its own. And so I started producing stuff that I felt like worked that way, starting with some of my own work from my BA thesis, which was translation. And then we ended up producing work by a contemporary poet named Catherine Tice. She adapted Medea into this really weird thing that had fire sprites in it. And yeah, it was all kinds of crazy. And we did that outside. We built a stage in a park that had allotted us space and we did an outdoor theater festival. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing right after graduating undergrad was like what I'm doing now with the sound experience. I was just leaning more into the theatrical aspects of it, the production side. So I'm picturing when you were talking about like experimental theater and poetry, I guess I'm picturing like something that might happen in the middle of the street. Is that the type of experimental stuff? That you mean, yeah, potentially? I'm, yeah, that would fit into this category. Okay. Theater that's overly focused on language and the way that language impacts an audience, the way that we hear things or the way that we interpret on the fly. More than like a Broadway play might engage us in like drama in a living room. This is engaging us in language drama. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it can happen in the street or it can happen in a closet or it can happen in a little black box, which is more often what we did. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the music part of poetry is productions here in Louisville. How did that become incorporated? So Poetry Is Productions went into a little of a hiatus when I did my MFA at Naropa, which was just before coming to Louisville. Naropa University is like a tiny experimental college out in Boulder, Colorado, founded by the Beat Poets. Um, like it Ginsburg sounds like a very Colorado thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. At the foot of the mountains, weird things happen. So while I was there, a different sort of community project called Beats was something that I started with other people that I was in a program with. And we did performance poetry. But it wasn't like a play. It was more leaning into the poetry side of things. And as we were writing, we were thinking about how to engage people with stuff off the page, how to get people thinking about poetry as something more than like a sonnet. And in experimental fashion, we started performing things live at readings in a different way than you do in normal poetry reading, right? It's not like just on the page, there's maybe movement involved or singing or costuming. Not like this was a novel idea. This has been done for years and years, right? In different fashions. But we were thinking about it as a community and how we could come together as a collective and do this sort of thing. At the same time that another event called Punketry started in Denver, which was an extension of our community of poets, they started performing poetry with punk music, like a live punk band, full drum kit, really fun. Um, I performed with them a couple times, and it sticks with you in a really different way when you're doing that. And so what really got Poetry Is a sound experience started was that punketry moment when I was like, this is something that audiences can feel differently with poetry. And so I put together a really big concert in Boulder 
featuring like Ann Waldman and her band and Punketry and like two other bands. Like, and we all performed really experimental poetry on stage. I just basically brought that idea to Louisville because there's been a punk scene here for a really long time. There are a lot of poets. The literary scene's really huge. And the theater scene's really huge too, right? But in a sort of different way. People here were hungry for what poetry is can provide, but didn't know exactly how to do it or what to call it, at least not currently. So as I started gathering together people who were like wanting to do weird things, we designed it in this way that was imitative of what we'd seen before. So describe what a poetry is experience is like if someone went to see one. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be different every time. That's part of the fun of it, right? You can come to as many as you're able, even with the same poets, and you're going to get something completely different every time because it's improvisational. So the basic elements are poets and musicians. And the musicians, for the most part, are improvising along with the poetry. So we'll maybe tell the musicians, this poem's kind of blue. <laughs> or maybe it's fuchsia. We've had those colors come up. And they're like, all right, fuchsia. And then, you know, they start like jamming something out. And we perform the poem. So what you're going to get is a mix of words and music in Many different combinations. As far as logistics go, we normally have four poets do like 10 minute sets each. So in that way, you could expect something like a poetry reading, right? But it's never going to sound like a normal poetry reading. And so the poetry that is being performed, is it also improvised or that's written ahead of time? It depends on which poet you're talking about. I'm not the best poetry improviser yet. That's a skill that I'm working on with these people. We all have different things that we like to lean into. One of our members, uh, Tyler Kurth, does collage and assemblage poetry. So he like basically takes a notebook up to the microphone and starts reading things. So he's performing it improvisationally, but he has material to work with. Some of us, like Isaiah Fish, does slam poetry style stuff that is adapted to work with music and it's very heightened performatively. I'm really attracted to language poetry and sort of sound mixing in it. So sometimes I sing when I perform poetry. It really depends. Same with the musicians too. They're all incredibly versatile and have either many instruments they can play or they like to chime in in different ways. They do sound effects. We do all kinds of really weird stuff. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm trying to wrap my stodgy 46-year-old brain around this. <laughs> you had mentioned like some of the experimental stuff. It might be costumes. It might be mm -hmm. visuals. Is that ever part of what they're doing on stage when you blend the music? Totally. Oh, okay. It's becoming more of a thing. The more we do this, the more we figure out what the potential is. Mm -hmm. And also it has a lot to do with the venue that we're in. So, for instance, we performed at the Fraser Museum last year, and we were doing a very specific interpretation of one of their exhibits that was about Kentucky music. So when we did that, we wrote new poetry that was based on the exhibit, and people performed it in that fashion. In another instance, in, like, say, an art gallery, we might do something that's a little bit more costumed or a little bit more visual. Like, we've done a necrastic reading that was a collaboration with the River City Review. And that was all about 
the experience of interpreting artwork into language. I could see us doing something like a collaboration with a visual artist on stage or something like that would be a good step. Well, I was wondering if you would consider this even like you're talking about doing it in an art gallery, performance art, but with words. Probably. Yeah. I, I, not probably. Yes. yes. I, would say, okay. <laughs> I mean, I love performance art. I've done some performance art that I would consider more like classic performance art in the past. But it's combining all of the experiential ways that performance art interacts with the audience. Because what we're really doing is trying to create a community experience, right? You are engaging on multiple levels with different aspects of the performance. And the audience sometimes performs. Like we like handing out instruments at oh, our events. That's so cool. you can like play along or you can like sing along or whatever it is you want to do. It's pretty much game. <laughs> so I'm curious, have you always been interested in poetry? Is that something that you've just always loved? Yeah, I've been writing poetry since like middle school, you know, like really angsty teen stuff. I was way into that. I was so into it. But even then, like when I think about one of my favorite angsty poems, which I will not recite, (laughs) I I won't even tell you what the title is. Um, But the way I wrote it was by composing as I listened to Firebird. (laughs) And so like even then I was thinking like, what? how does music or this other art form influence language? So I've always been intrigued by that. And I think that's why I've never been able to settle into like one category of this is what I do. I've always been excited by the intersections between them. I was interested that you said one of your poets does some slam poetry because we interviewed a slam poet five months ago or so. And I was going to ask you what the difference is, but it sounds like is isn't necessarily a difference. It's just that you have other people who do other things as well. Yeah, each of us brings our own flavor and style to the performance. We do have similarities, I guess, to slam poetry, but we're not doing competition, right? Which is a a unique aspect of slam. They're very interested in community too, so I'd say that's an aspect that we share. We're not restricted to like a time maximum or anything like that. It's not as rehearsed. It doesn't feel quite as polished when we do things it feels really raw and in that way you know like you're in the hands of someone who's done this before but it's not like you can expect a certain kind of thing to happen i love slam and i think that it just shares things with us but you know it's it's a little different yeah yeah so you're cousins yeah we're cousins yeah (laughs) we're cousins (laughs) what do you hope the participants get from the performances is that what you call them performances Or do you call them, what do you call them? Experiences. Experiences? Okay. (laughs) I guess they're experiences. They're they're kind of, they're performative. Performative experiences. (laughs) Um, This is a work in progress. How do I I name these intersectional things? What do I hope they get? I hope people leave thinking that art is something other than what they came in thinking it was. I think a really good improviser makes you think that performance can be something different than what it was when you came in, that it doesn't have to be rehearsed or that it can be spontaneous or that anyone can do it. I'm a firm believer that anyone can write and anyone can do poetry. And I think that this showcases some of the best things about live performance, live poetry, 
Also, it's a great alternative to like a stodgy poetry reading because we've all been to those. If we're if you're a poet, you have been to a poetry reading you did not want to be at. <laughs> I mean, it's two hours long. They're rambling. They've read their whole book to you. They're monotone. And there's no music, right? There may be finger food, though. So <laughs> this is an alternative to that. We tend to stay under an hour. So, you know, there's that aspect. It's going to be like kind of quick. You're going to get to chat with people. It's going to be real fast, hot and sweaty kind of thing. Like, (laughs) it's a different experience. Do you find that your audience is of a certain age range? Or do you feel like as you do more experiences that you're seeing a different blend or mix of people? It's different depending on where we are in the city and what kind of performance it is. We do tend to get a lot of younger people, you know, people my age and around. So we're talking like a lot of 20-somethings. And we do get people who are older than that if they know people in the group. I'd say that's like our general audience, but it depends on where we are as well. Like at Frasier, we had a lot of people who didn't know who we were or what we were doing. We were just at the Frasier. And so people came. And then they left thinking, like, I talked to some of them, like, what, what was that? I want to see it. I want it again. Like, I want to know what's going on. Like, I don't understand what just happened, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is something else that I like. You know, I want that to happen. I want people to think, like, that was really, really awesome. What was it? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> so we want to attract more people too of different demographics and that's that's a goal because i know sometimes people feel like they don't understand poetry or they don't feel comfortable if you tell somebody read this poem and describe what you think it's about because just a lot of times poems are very sparse they feel like i don't get it do you feel like what you all do helps people maybe develop a different relationship with poetry potentially absolutely yeah like it's been described as making poetry a little more accessible because what people talk about even in rehearsal we talk about this like understanding our own work differently because we're playing with musicians when you have the valence of music and and of language intersecting and and kind of harmonizing it's like a good it's like a song Mm -hmm. right so like the the pitch is going to help you interpret the meaning behind the language And of course, there are many interpretations, but in the moment, that sound really helps you associate meaning with the words. And so I think it creates a different level of accessibility with the way we do it. But I've heard people say that it does help. I know there's been occasions where I would share with students, I would bring a song and and I wouldn't play the song at first. I would just put the words, the lyrics of the song up Mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, we're going to be doing poetry today. And then I would play the song and they're like, wait, that's not... That, is that poetry? Is that lyrics? You know, I mean, (laughs) I think sometimes we forget how closely they intersect, you know, that they are sort of part and parcel of each other at times. So they collaborate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I agree. I feel like poetry is having a resurgence right now as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember writing angsty poetry as a teenager and reading a lot of poetry up into my 20s. And then you just didn't really hear anything about it. Maybe that was just because I got busy with other things. But I feel like now you see a lot of poetry books at the bookstore that you didn't see before. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. 
I mean, I might have a theory, but I and I totally agree. There is a resurgence going on. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that books are published and the accessibility of the publishing market now. It hasn't always been the case that a young writer could get published quickly, at least. You had to establish yourself in the, the smaller market, right? of big publishers. Now that small presses are a thing, I mean, they're a real thing. They are everywhere. And there are more and more and more of them every year. Online journals and online publication have become a huge thing too. And it's kind of like the zine scene of, of your, right? Distributing your stuff doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a huge publisher. So I think that has opened the gates for people a little bit. And the more that you get published, even self-publish, the more attractive you seem to bigger publishers, right? People, I think, have started to pick up on that. And bigger publishers, or people who've become bigger publishers, mm-hmm. too. There's, like, Grey Wolf, right? Which is now, like, huge. And, you know, they weren't always that way. Or, like, Wave books. They've picked up on the fact that younger people are being read. And so they're publishing younger people. And not to say it's exclusively younger people, but... I think that that has really fed the market. We've learned to read poetry for fun to some extent as younger people. And that's a huge deal. I think that's changed a lot about it. I wonder what happened with poetry is what's happening also with graphic novels. If you think about Keats, poetry used to be very popular. I think culturally popular. And then, like you said, Amy, you know, you might read poetry when you're a teenager and then you sort of get out of it. But I wonder how much of that is you just feel like it's not real reading. I'm putting those words in air quotes Mm. because it's not like a 600 page novel, which I think sometimes people don't think of graphic novels as quote real literature mm-hmm. but it is yeah you know but it, that just occurred to me it just seemed similar yeah it's like the difference between like formalist poetry maybe like a sonnet mm-hmm. let's let's say a petrarchan sonnet mm-hmm. and like a cut up or erasure it looks nothing like what you're used to poetry looking like and so it's devalued or, or given a different set of value with younger readers, that's become more value in some instances because it looks different. It's not what they were taught, you know, this is what poetry has to look like. So, like, graphic novels, are, I think, share a lot of that. Mm-hmm. They're novels. They're narratives. They share a lot of the same traits, but they're delivered in a different way. Right. And reading about you, we noticed that your work focuses on magical poetics. Explain to us what that is. That's a work in progress. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I can totally work toward that. That is my dissertation topic. So it's something that I'm thinking a lot about, but something that I haven't totally defined yet. So check back in in like two years (laughs) and make sure I answer the same way. But it's really related to what I do with poetry is and everything else in that I'm investigating linkages between what poets think their poetry can do with a reader and how they do that in community. So for me, poetry can do magic in that it can do something with a reader, right? Or with a listener. It performs something, it changes you. And in that sense, it changes actual reality, right? Our lived reality is changed through some poetry. And some poets take this really literally. Some poets think of it more metaphorically. Like literally speaking, some poets think that they are magicians, and historically have have done this, have written poetry as incantation or as conjuring. A good example of this is Jack Spicer, 
who was a Berkeley poet, and he wrote channeling poems of Federico Garcia Lorca and imagined that he was actually conversing with Lorca in these poems. And elsewhere, he talks about channeling aliens to be inspired. But this isn't that different than what Keats might have talked about, right? Like, this isn't that different than a muse. It's a newer conception of a muse. So in some ways, it's historically entrenched. So I'm talking both about that literal idea, like some poets think it literally does magic, and the metaphor that we can conceive of language as doing something, and that poetry in particular talks back to us and changes us. And then changes us together, right? Like, not just individually. Like, when we read or perform together, we are all affected in some way. That's where I'm at right now. I'm loving the alien stuff. Like, (laughs) I gotta tell you, that is the funniest stuff. (laughs) That's why I was excited to do, do this topic, right? I just, like... I never would have thought that poetry has already been conceived of in this way, that people have are, have been talking about it this way for centuries. Mm-hmm. Well, it's right? just another way of saying that words have power. Yeah, I mean, words words have power would be like a way of saying the same thing, I think. Though some, maybe some would think it has more power than others. Mm. Like, does it have actual power or do we give it the metaphor of power? What actually changes? This is one thing I want to write about. Like, what can actually change with poetry? And how does it do that? I want you to be able to read what I'm writing and then go do it. So now I'm a little afraid to ask about hybrid forms. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, part and parcel. <laughs> so what are hybrid forms of creative writing? For me or, yeah. like, in general? <laughs> Tell us both. Um so when You've I got an ignorant audience here, at least in this room with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably what, what you think it is, though. Really, it is as simple as like two different forms being mushed together. But for me, poetry that I write that is hybrid is often influenced by playwriting or theater. So when we're talking about poets theater, I think of that as a hybrid form. It's something that's in between or unrecognizable as one thing only. It's multiple things at once. So would a book that's written in verse be a hybrid form? A novel in verse? Yeah. yeah that okay. I would consider I would consider that a hybrid. Okay. But some people wouldn't. Some people might not. Okay. So that's the thing about hybridity, it's very difficult to define. It's something that's kind of up to the reader, and people find that scary sometimes, but I find it very exciting. If I have to figure out how to read what you've written, I'm probably going to be excited about that. Like, do I read this left to right? Amy might not be. (laughs) (laughs) Amy had trouble with a graphic novel. I'm getting better. (laughs) I'm getting better. I I think a lot can be said about how you read it, though, right? Like, the, the way that you as an individual read something that challenges your reading says a lot about you, and it also says a lot about the work. Like, it can give you different levels of interpretation. And and that's what I find exciting. So if you had trouble with a graphic novel, I kind of want to know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, this particular one, the way they had the boxes didn't flow linearly. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't sure where my eyes were supposed to go, how I was supposed to follow it. That mm-hmm. was the issue. Not that it was a graphic novel, Karen. Oh, I know. I know. I just think it's kind of funny, you know, because she's like, I have no idea how to read this. I'm like, 
just go with it, Amy. Just throw yourself into it. Because because I'm a big graphic novel fan. So I'm just like, go in and figure it out. It'll be awesome. So I am personally interested in the translating that you've done. You translated a play by the famous Spanish playwright, Frederico Garcia Yorca. And I've always been intrigued by translating, especially something that's a play or poetry, because the meter matters, the way the words particularly sound matter. And how do you translate something and also capture all of those elements still? With great difficulty (laughs) or like impossibility. Okay. (laughs) Embracing the impossibility of doing all of that at once is very helpful, I think, to avoid being very sad (laughs) and feeling like you've lost something. That lost in translation notion, Mm -hmm. I I try to like get that out of my head when I'm actually working on something because you're going to find something else to replace what you might think is lost, right? Something else will emerge. I started translating Lorca in undergrad. He was my BA thesis. He was my MFA thesis. So now I've translated three of his full-length plays, a handful of poems, and a short play. And I still don't know how to translate. And I say that whole knowing that I do know how to logistically translate something. But the idea that something can be captured in one language in the same way that it was captured in another language is, to me, that is impossible. So what you're doing is trying to interpret. It's an active reading technique, right? Where you just happen to know two different languages or be working with with different languages. So I think the way that you do it is by conceiving that that you are trying to say the same thing, but in, you're saying it. You can't be removed from this equation, right? So it's not Lorca both times. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Lorca and Shoemaker the second time, which frees you up a lot. Does that make some sense? Yeah, it does. I, yeah, it, does. Like, it does. It's a different notion than like interpreting, in which you're trying to say, you're trying to mimic and do exactly the same thing. For me, literary translation can't be exactly the same, so it's it's got to have a little bit of your own flavor in it, which is what makes it kind of exciting. For a reader, you could read five translations of one of Lorca's plays and read five different plays, essentially. If you're close reading, you're not mm. going to get just one. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been that fluent in Spanish? Did you start Spanish in middle school like most people? or I mean, or was it something that you... Grew up. I did start in middle school. Yeah. Okay. My history of fluency in Spanish is so fraught. It has changed in so many different ways. I try to tell people that I'm fluent in Lorca, um, <laughs> not in Spanish, because he is the Spanish writer that I know best. He's the one I've translated, and he has his own way of speaking and, and writing, right? That's going to be different any other Spanish speaker writer. So I'm very, very good at translating Lorca and understanding Lorca. I will say that. If you asked me to translate someone else, I don't know if I could. Huh. It'd be really hard. I'd have to learn their language, their specific language. And I know that's like not a thing that a lot of translators conceive of the work as. Like they think if you understand the idiom, then you can understand the writer. But I think of it a little more like biographically, I think. <laughs> That's really interesting. That is interesting. Well, I want to ask you, you had written, and I guess was this at the University of Chicago, the musical based on Sylvia Mm -hmm. Plath and Ted Hughes? Mm -hmm. I went through a period where I read a biography of her, I read a biography of him, I read both their poems. I just think that's an interesting relationship. So I'm curious about what inspired you 
to do that. It's totally fascinating. I mean, that, yeah. that fascination was what got me caught up in it. One of my friends at UChicago, Abby Pershing, and I were reading Sylvia's poetry and got into some biography and we're just talking about it. And I remember walking down 57th Street, like passing 57th Street books in Chicago. And we were like, it's so musical. And then we thought it was funny because we said the word musical and we both do theater. And we're like, well, it should be a musical. And so we like started thinking, like, how would Sylvia Plath sound in song? Her actual poems, what would they sound like if you sung, like if you sung Daddy right now? Like, what would that sound like? Daddy ended up being a jazz ballad. Um <laughs> Because that's that's precisely what we did. Hmm. I started writing those that night. I went home and recorded one because I got it stuck in my head. Like that's how I end up writing musicals. They just like little bits and pieces get in my head and I can't get them out unless I write them. And then I was thinking like, well, the story of Ted and Sylvia is such a problem. For so many people, it, it's polarizing. Ted had an affair when he was married with Sylvia. It was very late in their, in their marriage. It destroyed both of them and their children. And then, of course, Sylvia committed suicide and Ted never got over it. He was writing birthday letters for Sylvia the rest of his life, basically. And when he knew that he was going to die, he got it published. Mm-hmm. So... For me, it's not easy to tell one side of that story. So it had to become a musical that was only about these two people. And so it's a duet musical. It's just two two performers, one playing Ted, one playing Sylvia. And it's very historical, very biographical. I read everything I could from both sides with all the spin and all the bias on both sides and incorporated it. And the songs are their poetry mushed up with other poems and altered. That's been a whole fun game, trying to like avoid copyright problems <laughs> with that because the Plath estate is notorious for not giving permission for things. <laughs> Rest assured, I have done my work for that, though. Like, I just think it's really fascinating. And, and I think I feel this way more so with poets than I do with people who write novels. But I find myself... If I read a book, right now I'm teaching Ender's Game. And so I don't have this burning desire to go read a biography of Orson Scott Card. But it seems like when I read poetry, I do develop this desire to want to know more about the poet. And I don't know if it's because I feel like there's more mystery to the poetry. I'm not sure I I really understand why that is. But I've just found that to be the case with a lot of poets, more so than, you know, like straight up novelists. Yeah, I find that too. I mean, it it depends on the poet's style of writing, Mm -hmm. I think. Sylvia Plath really invites that kind of scrutiny because she's a confessional poet, Mm -hmm. right? She's writing... Or Anne Sexton. I went through a period where I read Anne Sexton biographies. Totally. And, And I mean, there is like a mystery around writing so deeply about yourself and about people that know you. You know, like they're poems that are very specifically about the mistress, right? And that Sylvia wrote. And so you like read that and you're like, oh, I got to really know what happened. And then you're not really getting what really happened, right? That's the premise of the musical is like, what can we say really happened? Mm-hmm. How can we talk about it productively and entertainingly? There's a tap dance. <laughs> Sylvia Plath tap dances. Oh my God. She's reciting um, Chaucer to a herd of cattle. And this really happened. She got up on a fence 
and started reciting Chaucer to a bunch of cows, and the cows came over and listened. And Ted chronicles this, and so we turned the uh, the cow recitation into a tap dance. <laughs> it's not all tap dances, of course, but your I mind love that works in fascinating ways. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to see Sylvia no, tap? Right? No, I'm sold. I, I want to see. I want to see her happy too. You know, I want to know what it was like when she wasn't suffering. She deserves a good tap dance yeah. in front of cows. Yeah. Of and jazz ballad. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So one last question. What future plans do you have for poetry is? What what do you have coming up? We've got a couple of things planned already for this year and a lot of stuff in the works. We collaborate as people come to us or as we think like, oh, wow, this would be a weird thing to do. We're doing a book release February 29th at 4 o'clock at Bean Coffee Shop. <laughs> we're going to be doing a book release there with some out-of-town folks who are going to come in and perform with us. We've been planning a series of workshops on the opioid epidemic with Culbertson Mansion. In New um, Albany? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so that'll be coming up later in the year. We're probably also going to be collaborating with Fraser again later in the year. So there's a lot of stuff happening and many things on the horizon that I can't release yet but we're always hoping to plan new experiences and work with new people and if people want to find out more about poetry is where could they find that uh poetry is our website and you can find my contact information on there and just shoot me an email we're also on facebook and we're on instagram as, as poetry well. is as poetry is yeah okay. at poetry is for all i believe okay Awesome. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We're back and I'm here with Eric Shoemaker and Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? So we have had this book in our house for a very long time because I bought it eons ago for my husband for one of his birthdays. But it is called... Am I allowed to say that word, actually? You are allowed. I am allowed to say this word. Okay, it's called Badass, The Birth of a Legend, and it's by Ben Thompson. So I read with my boys pretty much every night before bed, and we finished a book, and we're waiting for another book from the library. And so when we have kind of this lag time, I'll try to find something short. Well, I decided that I was going to see about reading parts of this book. So what it is, it's a book of essays about different badasses. So I will tell you some of them. Uh, Zeus has a chapter. Thor has a chapter. Uh, Finn McCool, Beowulf, Captain James T. Kirk. Have you noticed that you have a thing for books that are compilations of people? (laughs) I'm starting to pick up on that. Yes, yes. There are some ladies in here. Uh, Atalanta is in here and Kali, the Hindu death goddess. I I need to read about her next. But anyway, this book, it's really funny. If you're a better parent than me, you will not read this to your children. (laughs) But (laughs) my children have heard their fair share of inappropriate language from their mother. So I'm just like, whatever, they can handle me saying 
Yes. They have a chapter on Skeletor. So I really feel like to get a sense of what this book is like, I need to read you just a short excerpt. Okay, Skeletor, was that from Conan the Barbarian? No, that was from He-Man. Oh, He-Man. Yeah, right, right, right. He okay. 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 I'm so ready. <laughs> An abusive boss with no respect for his troops. Skeletor leads through terror and fear and by constantly threatening to taxidermy his friends and use their skins to reupholster his furniture and luggage. His threats aren't solely directed at his allies, however. As a power-hungry, super-arrogant megalomaniac, Skeletor also doesn't hesitate to utilize his acerbic, non-existent tongue to mock and and taunt He-Man and his douchey friends whenever possible. <laughs> Generally, this manifests itself in Skeletor prematurely boasting about how awesome he is just before someone busts out a crazy maneuver that turns the tables on the forces of evil and generally results in Skeletor running away from an entire army of Eternian soldiers on flying motorcycles. But that's just how life works when you're a sinister cartoon villain. You're never going to win, so you may as well enjoy the moment and do as much damage to your opponent's self-esteem as you can while you have the chance. So <laughs> it's really funny. There are a lot of phrases about you know, because it's talking about these tough guys and about how they're like busting each other's balls and stuff like, which my sons just totally love, you know, any reference to somebody getting hit in the gonads they think is fantastic. Yeah, not appropriate. But I'm kind of like, you know, my sons maybe learn what the word acerbic means. You know, this this does throw in some bigger words and they get to pick the chapter. So last night was Darth Vader and one of my sons picked Beowulf. So he got to learn the whole backstory of Beowulf yes. and Grendel and Grendel's mother. And so, you know, it's not all bad, but it's just a good book to kind of pick up a chapter every once in a while. And so this is an adult book. Not this is a... definitely okay. an adult book. I mean, you know, the teenager. Well, no, what I'm yeah. saying is it's not a middle grade. No, 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 no. It's, no. it's meant for is, adults. This is poor parenting choice okay. on my part. <laughs> okay. Yes, to read to her sons. But, but anyway, Beowulf. it's... Beowulf. But, but it's got Beowulf. <laughs> I mean, you know, my one son last night said he wanted to pick the next chapter. And so he said, I want to read The Furries. And I looked and I said, you mean The Furies? Okay, we can read The Furies. So anyway, tonight's chapter is going to be about The Furies. So that's what I've had going on. Eric, what have you had going on? So I do a lot of reading for school, which does not leave a lot of time for fun reading. But over winter break, I was able to read a few things. Two poetry books that I would recommend are Be With by Forrest Gander and I Will Destroy You by Nick Flynn which are both incredibly dismal and sad, <laughs> but then turn it around a little bit. They're about grief, and mm. both of them actually touch on grief and how you move on mm. from it in interesting poetic forms, I think. Nick Flynn's one of my favorites, and Forrest Gander is actually going to be at the University of Louisville for the Louisville Conference in like a month. Oh, cool. So I'm going to get to meet him. Um, which is great. But I also wanted to mention a graphic novel that is really adorable and also heartbreaking called Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien 2. And I believe I corrected it. I think it's Everyone's a Alien When You're a Alien 2 <laughs> by Johnny Sun. And this is a really, really adorable book with this cute little alien who confronts all of the human catastrophes that have happened. I won't spoil anything but he meets a lot of quote-unquote humans along the way including a really lonely bear and a really self-aware otter and <laughs> <laughs> 
as as he tries to learn about these quote unquote humans, he learns a lot about what it means to be alive in the universe and what it means to have friends and to love and to lose. Oh. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking oh, and really it beautiful. It sounds so good. It's beautiful. And the and the alien on the cover is so cute. Oh, he's so, he's so cute. cute. And it's a quick read, too. I mean, it's, this is the kind of book I wanted to read like four times, but I had to check it back into the library. So, <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like one to definitely pick up. Amy, what are you doing? What I you got going on? delved into the animal world with my picks this week. So I read a book. Was it about a dog? Yes. Yes, it was about a dog in the wild sense of dog. So I read a book called The Daily Coyote, A Story of Love, Survival, and Trust in the Wilds of Wyoming by an author named Shreve Stockton. And this is part memoir, part nature book. Stockton is a photographer by trade. And when she was living in San Francisco, she decided to move to New York City. She was driving cross crunchy and she stops overnight in Wyoming and falls in love with it and decides to pick up and and move there instead of actually going to New York City. And she's a city girl who's had no real experience living in a rural area, but she settles in this town called Ten Sleep and their population is 300 people. So she rents a little cabin that doesn't have any heat or running water, but she thinks it's really cool. Wait a minute. She was on her way to New York City? Yes. Yes. Yes, she was. Okay. Continue. So she begins dating this local rancher, but this rancher has a side gig, and it's what I would call he's a coyote assassin. That's not what they call him in the book, but that's that's <laughs> kind of what he does. So in the American West, the coyote has sort of been vilified and a lot of ranchers and even just people who live in towns there see them as a threat not only to their property, their domesticated animals. And so the government has a program where they sort of get rid of any coyotes that are close to humans at all in their property. So Mike, her boyfriend, he catches and kills the coyotes either through traps, snares. Sometimes he shoots them from small little biplanes. But one time he finds a young coyote pup and the mother's already been taken care of, we shall say. But he decides to keep this coyote pup and give it to the author. And she decides to hand raise it herself. And she names him Charlie, which is the government code name they use for coyotes over the radio. So the author begins taking photos of Charlie every day and she sends them to her family and friends. And people keep telling her that they're beautiful and she should really like put them on the internet. So eventually she starts a photo blog called The Daily Coyote and it becomes extremely popular and she uses this as a way to have some income for herself because, well, she's in the middle of nowhere and she's not really a, a rancher herself. What was interesting to me about this book is the way in which Charlie is so much like a domesticated dog. He wags his tail, he licks the faces of those he loves. He wants to play fetch with his toys. He tries to make friends with some of the the neighbor's dogs. But in other ways, he's still just very wild. When he comes to an adolescent age, he becomes sporadically aggressive with the author, growling and baring his teeth. And he's never really trustworthy. And there's the dilemma that the author faces and that by taking Charlie and saving his life, she's destined him to be in a life of confinement. So he can't ever really be let back into the wild. He no longer has all the wild coyote skills or instincts. And because the local human population has such anti-coyote sentiments, she feels like she can't even leave him unattended in her backyard. 
So Charlie will never have complete freedom or safety. So which is better to have lived confined or to not have lived at all? The book is sprinkled throughout with the author's amazing pictures of Charlie and the landscape of Wyoming. And I think this would be a great book for nature lovers, animal lovers, those who are interested in animal conservation and photography. Now, after I read this, I started thinking about Call of the Wild by Jack London, which I had never read and decided that might be kind of an interesting counterpoint to this book. So I listened to that on audio. That was published in 1903, um, and it's based on a lot of Jack London's own personal experiences during some of the gold rush. And so in The Call of the Wild, London writes about the fictionalized story of a domesticated dog named Buck who's kidnapped from his life as a farm dog on a ranch in California, and he's taken to Seattle where he's sold as a sled dog heading to the Yukon. This book is brutal and violent and was hard for me to read as a dog lover, an animal lover. Buck goes from being a dog who lives like a domesticated dog to a dog who must fight to survive just like wolves in the wild. I found this book to be completely machismo, like very testosterone. Call of the wild. Yeah, fueled. Mm -hmm. Where the daily wolf contains so much tenderness and nurturing for Charlie the coyote The Call of the Wild is just a world totally devoid of any kind of tenderness. And even the one owner that Buck ends up loving, I feel sort of betrayed him in a way. And I won't go into any details about that. But Charlie becomes dependent on humans and Buck has to learn to depend on himself. Mm. And so they were sort of an interesting pair. Yeah. So hearing about that, like Charlie kind of makes me sad. But you said there's pictures in this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, lovely pictures. Lovely pictures, because she is a photographer by trade. Yeah. I'm going to cry now. I, I liked it. I, I had bought it for my daughter for Christmas, because she thinks she wants to be a vet. Oh. And so I thought this would be a, a good book for her that she might be interested in. And I don't think she's read it yet, but obviously I picked it up. So <laughs> I couldn't handle the dog trauma right now. I just got a dog. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't a do dog it right trauma. now. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, before we, you know, all start like breaking out in hives with our sadness, we're going to pause. And when we come back, we're going to ask Eric his top five. We are back with Eric Shoemaker and we are going to ask him his top five. So, Eric, you said that you are a fan of horror films. What do you like about them? And what is your top horror film? So, super fan might be a little more <laughs> accurate, maybe, or, or ridiculous fan. My favorite horror films are The Babadook and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which are wildly different, right? And what I think is so important about them is that they depend on a primal instinct, right? Like, we can all be afraid. Or we can all feel fear or like some kind of emotion similar to that. And if you can manipulate that as a writer or director, like if you can get people to feel something so primal and in a good way, like I feel like you're doing something really cool. So my goal eventually is to write one myself. Yeah. I think they tell us a lot about what society is afraid of as well. They change so much over time. I mean, The Babadook is so different from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That one I'm not right? familiar with. What's that one about? The Babadook? Uh-huh. So it's more contemporary, and I'd say it's it's a metaphor for grief. I'd say that the creature of the Babadook, which is this big, scary, hatted, and clawed thing that stalks the shadows with this poor woman who's lost her husband, and her son is there. He sees it, too. I'd say it's a metaphor 
for grief. And, and that's a little different than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like fear of abduction or um, perhaps like surveillance and also like bodily horror that that movie plays on. So yeah, check out The Babadook too. Hmm. It's like psychological thriller horror. It's, mm-hmm. you know, a little less uh, gory. There are no chainsaws. <laughs> There are no meat hooks. That's a, that's a, that's a positive. Yeah. <laughs> so have you always been interested in horror films? For a long time. Yeah. I don't like haunted houses. And oh. I've never liked haunted houses because I don't want anything to touch me. Yeah. <laughs> so my way into like Halloween things was through film. My favorite is The Shining. Yes. And it will, I think, always be my favorite. And I do like horror films that are are about haunted houses. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that I like the most. My favorite haunted house horror film is The Conjuring. Have you oh, seen it? yeah. Yes. I couldn't watch the whole thing. Yes, I'm kind of, I, a, I do watch occasional horror films, but I'm kind of a chicken and I have to watch between my fingers. <laughs> well, no, the big chicken is sitting right here <laughs> because I don't, I won't even go there. I just can't even do horror films. I went to therapy to not be scared of everything. So I feel like if I watch horror films, that's just going to undo. Three years of therapies. And now like suspense, movies like Inception and stuff like that, where it's like you maybe don't know what's going on. But my husband and I watched, and I don't even know if this would count as a horror film. It was something like Bloomfield. Something. Oh, Cloverfield? Clo- that's it. Yeah. Cloverfield. That something. Counts. Does that count? I think it kind of counts. Okay. Yeah. So I watched like part of that where the girl, she's in the basement, mm-hmm. right? And so we watched that. And I got to the point where she almost gets out. And then it gets even weirder. And I was like, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. Done, done, done. I just, I don't know. I I can't do it. I find them kind of cathartic, though. It's not like I, like, haunted houses, no. I don't want to be scared in in real life. But I can be scared while I'm watching something. I think maybe I just get so sucked in that I can't, like, I can't remind myself that this is not real. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I can read scary books doesn't bother me scary movies can't handle it i want to watch them like i watched the haunting of hill house with my husband and my daughter but then i had to have my husband walk me to the bathroom (laughs) you mean the series right (laughs) that is so good yes oh Oh my gosh highly recommend the bent neck lady oh my god oh that episode oh i just got a little chill (laughs) so good (laughs) so we know that you are a music appreciate Tour. Tour, yes. <laughs> so if you could master any musical instrument yourself, which would it be? So I, I think it's a tie between guitar and violin. I have tried playing the guitar. And you might occasionally see me at a Poetry Is event trying to play the guitar. <laughs> but I, I'm not good. If I were really, really good at that, I'd, I'd feel much better about myself. <laughs> but the violin is just really seductive. So I kind of wish I could play that too. If I were good at one, maybe I could play the other one. I don't know. Maybe they have similar skills. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I mean, stringed instruments, you know, yeah. they share qualities. Yeah, but I don't know about bowing, you know, like for a violin. Like, I just yeah. scares me. I don't know. My daughter learned how to play viola. And I'm mm-hmm. like, if my daughter can learn how to play viola, then yeah. anybody can learn how to play viola. So mm, maybe I'll I mean, she's not an try. idiot, but, I, you know, <laughs> I just sorry. And sorry if you're listening. <laughs> All right, so who is your top Spanish or Hispanic author? So the obvious answer is Lorca, which I will also say my cat is named after. Oh. His name is Rico. Oh. 
I'll name drop Rico right now. But I've also read uh, Roberto Bolaño. So Antwerp is a favorite of mine. It's an experimental novel. And Cecilia Vicuña is an experimental poet who I also really like, who writes between languages, um, indigenous and Spanish languages. So she's pretty interesting to check out. So are both of those from Latin America or are they from Spain? They're from Latin America. Latin America. Yeah. They're not from Spain. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So you like to bake. What is the top item that you like to bake? And then what has been your worst baking flop? I've had so many baking flops. This was a very hard question to think about in advance. I was like, which one do I pick? Because I am a better cook than baker, I think, because I like the imprecision that cooking Mm. allows. But I've gotten very good at fruit tarts. Um, So I will say a fruit tart with a French custard is like I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that now. Um, Too bad you didn't bring one today. I, know. I really should have. I really should have. Well, he's in graduate school. Well, <laughs> but I like doing that as a treat for myself and and my roommate Olivia. And I do I make it all from scratch, so it's kind of a nice like stress, de-stressing thing ritual mm-hmm. that I do. Worst flop, I left some cookies in the oven for about twenty minutes too long one time, and they turned into these little brown like rocks. <laughs> That we still tried to eat. Because you really wanted the cookies. We were so sad that I screwed them up so badly. And I think my friend just wanted me to feel better. (laughs) Brown chocolate chip rocks. Yes. (laughs) All right. Last question. What was your top favorite book when you were a child? I was a big Potterhead, so I read The Goblet of Fire like five times and Prisoner of Azkaban. Those were favorites of mine. But also anything vaguely fantasy was going to be my favorite, like the Golden Compass series, Chronicles of Narnia. Loved those books. And I was such a voracious reader. I just I just tried to read everything that fell into a remote category that I liked. So that one was kind of hard, too, to pick. Yeah, you know, but it was fun to think about. Like yeah. the first time that I read *The Magician's Nephew* by C.S. Lewis, I was like really taken. So remembering that was really fun. Do you still read a lot of fantasy, or do you find that mostly the stuff is poetry? Most of the stuff that I read is poetry, but I'm writing things that are like falling between horror and fantasy sometimes when I'm trying to write new things, when I have the time to write. There's that whole magical poetic thing. Which I wonder where that came from. Well, it has been so great having you here and having you tell us all about Poetry Is, and we are going to try to make it to one of your all's experiences. Please, yes, please come to our experiences. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.